to Sermons from San Diego, a podcast of preaching at Mission Hills United Church of Christ. I'm the Reverend Dr. David Barr, but please just call me David. I invite you to listen and come along as we try to follow the wisdom of Scripture to build a world that is open, inclusive, just, and compassionate. And now for this week's sermon, continuing our series this summer. When we left off last week, Joseph had reconciled with the very brothers who threw him into a pit and sold him to traders on their way to Egypt when he was 17 years old. You know, the bratty little brother who loved to tattle on them and who told them outrageous dreams about ruling over them and who liked to rub their faces in, in the fact that he was daddy's favorite. Well, after a subsequent wild ride of events, including 30 years in prison, Joseph interpreted two dreams for Pharaoh and ended up in charge of successfully preparing Egypt for seven years of famine, along with saving others from starvation too, including his unsuspecting brothers who came from Canaan to buy grain. Joseph told Pharaoh about his family, and he invited them to all settle in Egypt. Jacob and his wives and his twelve sons and twenty-one daughters, yes, he had thirty-three children with four wives, plus their children, wives, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. They were invited to settle in the best land in the whole nation of Goshen. And the locals didn't mind because Joseph was in the midst of saving the entire nation of Egypt from starvation. But there's an overlooked part of the story, often overlooked. In a famine that lasts seven years, you could imagine that people would eventually run out of money to buy more grain. It started happening. The people weren't told up to save, told to save up for seven years. Pharaoh was, and he took full advantage. When the money ran out and all the people's silver had been traded for grain, Joseph traded for their livestock. And when the people had no more livestock, he traded for their property. And when all the land was in the possession of Pharaoh, the people offered to become slaves to save themselves from starvation. Joseph effectively turned the nation into sharecroppers. The people could still live on the land that once belonged to them, but they they would have to pay back Pharaoh with the produce of his land. So without money or livestock or land, they were completely without anything except his mercy and perpetually in his debt. But then promptly nothing more is said of that curious story or of the famine itself. And suddenly it's 17 years later and Joseph's father is about to die. It is on a father's deathbed that a blessing is conferred upon the oldest son to become the leader of the tribe. But you may remember that Jacob tricked his older twin out of that blessing. Jacob conspired with their mother to deceive their father out of giving his deathbed blessing to Esau. Jacob stole that blessing. And here it is now time for Jacob to give his deathbed blessing. He gathered all twelve sons around. Reuben was his oldest and the obvious family heir. But instead of blessing him, Jacob cursed him because, here's today's soap opera detail, Reuben slept with one of his father's wives. He was out. So logically, the blessing would then fall to Simeon, or if not him, the next brother in line, Levi. But Jacob chastised them both. Cursed be your anger. It's violent. Cursed be your rage. It is relentless. 
no blessing for them either. Judah was the next in line, and it was this fourth son who finally received the favored status, the head of the tribe. And it's why Jews are called Jews, Judahites, and not Reubenites. We'll talk about that story another time. Jacob continued blessing son after son, reserving the longest blessing for the first son of his favorite wife, Rachel, still his favorite son, Joseph. He said, blessings from the sky above, blessings from the deep sea below, blessings from breasts and womb. The blessings of your father exceed the blessings of the eternal mountains. And he goes on and on for 19 lines. In contrast, he said to his son Issachar that he is, quote, a sturdy donkey. It's kind of a funny compliment. And simply, as a matter of fact, told Zebulun that he will live at the seashore. Even his beloved Benjamin, the baby brother, only got three lines. But bottom line, this is how Judah became the head of the tribe of Israel. Reuben slept with one of his father's wives, and Simeon and Levi were hotheads. Jacob died and was brought back to Canaan to be buried. His body was accompanied by all the elder statesmen of Egypt and their chariots and horsemen. It was a huge collection of people who mourned for seven days. Joseph continued to live a long life, 110 years, long enough to meet the grandchildren of his children. Upon his death, he was honored and buried in Egypt. Oh, but how soon we forget. Today's reading began. How now a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph. How's that possible? I mean, thanks to him, the country not only survived seven years of famine, they were now a very wealthy nation, thanks to the wealth amassed from the desperate nations around them. At the time, Egypt was the equivalent of a global superpower. So what else is going on? You know, somehow scripture is continually relevant. And this is a great example. Pharaoh needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to blame for some indiscretion or some incompetence, something that would deflect attention. He needed an enemy and he found a target. Several years ago, Alan Alda starred in a Michael Moore movie called Canadian Bacon. It's one of my favorite movies. He plays a hapless president plagued by poor poll numbers. His advisors convince him he needs to create a war to cover up a faltering economy, but they didn't want any real consequences. So they declared war on Canada. They stoked suspicions and the fear of Canadians walking secretly among us. Americans were suddenly pouring maple syrup onto the streets. Anne Murray was banned from the radio, and TV stations couldn't show hockey anymore. The president's approval ratings soared, and any memories of our long friendship with Canada were forgotten. Pharaoh tried to alarm the people by claiming, there are way too many of these foreigners for us to handle. We've got to do something. We've got to devise a plan to contain them. Otherwise, if there's a war, they might join our enemies. And as one translation adds, or just walk off and leave us. That's such a curious line. I mean, if there are too many, why not just let them leave? Could it be, maybe, 
that he needs their cheap labor? They were put into work gangs and made to perform hard labor. However, the worse they were treated, the more children they had. <laughs> there had been too many, and now there were even more. So they went a step further and enslaved them. They piled on work, trying to crush them under a cruel workload, making bricks and mortar and back-breaking work in the fields. But nothing was working. They couldn't be broken. So Pharaoh told, the, Pharaoh told the two Hebrew midwives to kill all the boys as they were being born. Shipra and Pua respected God too much to do as they were ordered, so they, they made up a story that the Hebrew women were so strong they gave birth before the midwives could show up. So when that idea didn't work, Pharaoh gave an order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew baby boy into the Nile River. He tried torture. He tried to enslave. Nothing was working. So Pharaoh turned the entire nation into a killing machine against the people who had saved their ancestors from starvation. Was it really that a new king didn't know who Joseph was? How could they do that? The nation had lost its collective memory. Or perhaps they were forbidden to learn their history. As one liberation theologian said, ordinary people don't set out to oppress and exploit. That can only happen if those in power can skew or even obliterate the corporate memory of the people. Those who are to be victimized must be perceived as a threat. And people will accept the oppression and exploitation of a people because they have been frightened by the powers that be to scapegoat that people. It's a playbook dating all the way back to the ancient pharaohs. And once again, ancient scripture remains relevant. Throughout history, immigrants have conveniently played that role of scapegoat. And a nation that forgets is dangerous and will do it again and again. Pharaoh found a target. But one person disrupted his plans. We now transition from a summer of stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, stories about Sarah and Hagar and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah and don't forget Uncle Laban, stories of Dinah and Joseph and his 11 brothers, of tricksters and dreams and wrestling in the night, stories about why they were in Egypt, how did they become enslaved, and how will they get out? Hopefully you can see how this has all been leading to the great sweep of stories about Moses and burning bushes and plagues and so much more. Scripture is full of admonitions to remember, exhortations to remember. God repeatedly cautions, warns, do not forget who you are and where you come from. Once you were a stranger in a strange land. And every time they chose to forget, God admonished them. And so the story begins with the birth of a beautiful Hebrew boy. But every Egyptian citizen had been ordered to kill just such a child, so his mother tried to hide him. One day his mother put him in a basket to float down the Nile, just downstream of where Pharaoh's daughter was known to bathe. His sister stood nearby to watch what would happen. 
Now why her I don't know, but Pharaoh's daughter noticed the basket and sent one of her servants to bring it. The boy was crying, and she felt compassion. Just then the baby's sister happened to pass by and asked, Would you like me to go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? It was an absolutely brilliant setup. The girl went and, quote, found a woman, the boy's actual mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter offered to pay this anonymous woman to nurse it. I love it. And after the child was weaned, Pharaoh's daughter, even though she knew it was a Hebrew boy, the target of her father, she adopted the child as her own son and named him Moses, meaning I pulled him out of the water. That's the story of Moses' birth. The birth of great heroes often include miracles. In fact, Moses isn't the only hero to have been pulled out of the Nile as a baby. But there's more to this story than his birth. In this long sweep of history, the story demonstrates how the seeds of freedom for the slaves were sown years before through the sophisticated use of civil disobedience by women the midwives who defied Pharaoh, by Moses' clever mother and sisters who carefully plotted a way for him to be rescued, and then the daughter of the very Pharaoh who decreed his death. Whether she intended to or not, she made a fool out of her father. The evil schemes of one man were disrupted by acts of rebellious women, acts of rebellious compassion. It inspires in me again an appreciation for how small acts per multiply into great acts of liberation. When we feel overwhelmed by hatred or violence, there's nothing worse than feeling like there's nothing we can do. It's worse than even anger. But each act of compassion, rebellious compassion, inspires another. And that's what makes this ancient text so relevant today. We too can remember and reject what is fearful. We can engage in acts of rebellious compassion toward the people we are told don't belong here, toward people who are different in any way. We can name what Pharaoh did, his blame-pointing, fear-mongering, power-grabbing, and disrupt and defeat it with compassion. As Paul told the Romans, if possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Don't try to get revenge for yourselves. Leave that to God. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If she is thirsty, give her drink. And by doing this, you will heap piles of burning coal upon their heads. Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil, evil with good. Like the women who saved Moses, engage in the kinds of acts of compassion that plant seeds of liberation which may blossom long after us. And for God's sake, I mean literally, for God's sake, don't forget our history. Don't forbid the teaching of our history. As scripture teaches, it will lead to terrible things over and over. That is why God repeatedly pleads with us to remember it all. If this sermon spoke to you, you're invited to worship with us online or 
If you live around San Diego, join us in person every Sunday at 10 a.m. in our beautiful historic sanctuary and be moved by the music, prayers, and common purpose of the congregation. For example, don't just come to worship, participate in such things as our free food distribution every month. Help us build a house in Tijuana every year. Take part in a book discussion group or Bible study on Zoom. Or share an activity with a group of seven friends. All this and much more for children and youth too. Visit missionhillsucc.org and learn more. Thanks for listening to Sermons from San Diego.